In this morning, congregation, we would invite and encourage you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. We'll be reading a section of Scripture that begins at verse 1 and continues through verse 8. And then our text will actually be taken from Romans 8 verse 1. And then we'll be reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 23. I trust that you are well instructed, but I also want to continually remind myself and the churches that we use the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgian Confession and the Canons of Dort uh, as faithful summaries of the Word of God. So we believe that they faithfully summarize uh, the teachings of the Word of God, and they provide uh, a valuable structure for expounding the various truths and doctrines of Scripture. But we read first from the inspired Therefore, infallible and inerrant word of God this morning from Romans 4, 1 through 8. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Then if you'll flip forward to Romans 8, verse 1, a well-known verse, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thus far, the reading from the Word of God, then Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, has three questions. Uh, It asks, first of all, in question 59, what good does it do you, however, to believe all this? Just a reminder that the all this is the explanation of the articles of the Apostles' Creed, uh, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the Catechism is asking, so what? So what that you believe all of these things? What is, the, what is the profit? What is the advantage? What is the benefit of the Christian faith? And the answer, in Christ I am right with God and heir to life everlasting. Question 60 digs a little deeper as it asks, how are you right with God? And the answer, only, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is to accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Question 61. Why do you say that by faith alone you are right with God? And the answer, it is not because of any value my faith has 
that God is pleased with me. Only Christ's satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness make me right with God. And I can receive this righteousness and make it mine in no other way than by faith alone. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps by way of introduction, just a brief word of explanation for why I chose uh, this Lord's Day or, or this truth uh, to preach to you this morning. Now, there are a few practical considerations. Uh, I know that Reverend Pontier is near the beginning of the catechism uh, in his exposition of it, so I thought it would be wise not to duplicate what he is doing Uh, And so I thought, well, maybe we'll go to the middle of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, But there is a deeper explanation uh, behind why I chose what I chose. I I look at it this way, in all honesty. If I, as a gospel minister, had one opportunity, just one opportunity, to preach to a congregation, what should I preach on? If I had one opportunity to communicate something to you, those of you who are young, those of you who are old, only one chance, what would I want to preach on? Now we anticipate gathering again this evening for our second worship service, but let us be reminded that none of us ever knows if we will hear or deliver another sermon. Uh, A wise minister once told me, every time you preach, remember, this may be the first time that someone hears the gospel, or it may be the last time that someone hears the gospel. And so I thought, what better theme, what better truth, what better teaching to preach to you than justification by faith alone? Because this is the very pillar of, upon which the church stands or falls, according to Martin Luther. And so I want, I desire, I need to set before you this truth, because this truth of justification by faith alone gives the answer of how a person can be right with God. How a person who maybe is only five years old, Or a person who is 85 years old. How can that individual person be in a a right relationship with the Almighty God of heaven and of earth? The answer is found only in the truth of justification by faith alone. As expounded in Romans 4, as summarized in Romans 5 verse 1, and as also then clarified in Romans 8 verse 1. So I ask for your attention this morning upon our theme, redemption through righteousness in Christ. And as we unfold that theme, we'll notice, first of all, the very idea of righteousness Secondly, the basis for righteousness. And then thirdly, the reception of righteousness. So righteousness through redemption in Christ. The idea, and then the basis, and then the reception of that righteousness. So consider with me, first of all, the idea of righteousness. What exactly is it to be righteous? What exactly is this word? What exactly does this term denote? 
Uh, well, we can say two things in connection to the idea of righteousness. First of all, we need to think of a relationship to God's being, His very essential being. And then secondly, we also need to think about righteousness in relationship uh, to God's law. If you notice the way that our catechism summarizes uh, the truth of God's Word, both in answer 59 uh, and in answer 61, it, it speaks about with God. The answer in 59, in Christ I am right with God, and in question 61, by faith alone you are right with God. And that, and that places the primary emphasis exactly where it needs to be when we consider righteousness. Yes, it's good. And you should, boys and girls, you should listen to the, the teachings of your teachers and of your father and your mother. Honor your father and your mother. And so it's good to be in a right relationship uh, with parents and with elders and with teachers. Uh, but even more important, more essential, more critical is our relationship with God. And I fear that our culture, and at times it even infects our church, we become more concerned with the horizontal relationships between one another rather than the vertical relationship between ourselves and our God. Have you ever had it where you wonder, what do they think of me? To be honest, we have that as my family comes here and as we walk among you for a couple of days... Well, what do they think of us? That's a valid question. And maybe you ask the same question. Well, what does he or what do they think of us? Maybe young people, as you're going back to school or as you begin to interact in the workforce, maybe you have this question. Well, what does my peer think of me? That's a valid question, but I would present to you this morning that that is secondary at best. The most important question is, what does God think of me? What is my relationship with God? Where do I stand with God? Because, remember, God is the sovereign judge in what theologians call his rectoral justice. Rectoral justice, he has the ability, he has the right, he has the duty because he is the creator of the heavens and of the earth to establish moral standards. There are moral absolutes, by the way, and those moral absolutes are a result of God's own character. There are things that are holy and there are things that are sinful. There are things that are good and there are things that are evil. And those things are not determined by some arbitrary mechanism, but rather by God's very essential nature itself. So God is the judge of the entirety of the human race. And no one is outside the perimeters of God's absolute justice. God is the governor. God is the ruler of men. And he is a perfectly holy God who, because of his attribute of holiness, cannot look upon sin without taking offense and without also dealing with that sin. And so we all, we all live in the jurisdiction, as it were, of this perfectly holy and sovereign God. You hear much in our day uh, of the autonomy of man. Generically speaking, people say, I'm going to live my life the way I want to live my life. 
That's nothing new. That dates all the way back, really, to the garden uh, when Adam and Eve said, in essence, the same thing. But you can think, perhaps, especially of the French Revolution. No God, no king. We're autonomous. Well, humanity believes that lie, but it's a lie. We're not autonomous. We're not free to decide and to determine what is right for ourselves. We live underneath the jurisdiction of a holy and sovereign God. And I ask you this morning, as I ask myself this morning, have we reckoned with that fact? Have we reckoned with the fact that we are living underneath the jurisdiction of a thrice holy God? Well, there is the law of God, and the law of God speaks, whether it be in the conscience of man, as that has been given to man as he bears the image of God, or whether that is also then spoken of, for example, in Exodus chapter 20. And when the law speaks, our own conscience accuses us. That's what our catechism says. Our conscience accuses us. Now, the conscience can be like a speedometer on a car or on a truck. Uh, If it is set correctly, it tells you by one look at the gauge how fast you are going. But the speedometer can be off. Uh, And there's a variety of reasons for why a speedometer may be off. It might just be that the vehicle is old and that the speedometer is broken, no longer works. It might be because, uh, you know, you're one of those young guys who, who lifted the truck and put some big monster tires underneath there, and that affects the speedometer so that it's no longer reliable, no longer uh, accurate. But the conscience is like the speedometer, you might say, uh, of the human person. And, and when we're out of line with the law of God, when we're speeding, as it were, violating the commandments of God, uh, the conscience speaks and it accuses us. And it says, you are not keeping the law perfectly. And maybe even this morning, as those ten words were read, uh, your conscience accused you. Uh, and it said, you, you served idols this week. You took the Lord's name in vain this week. Uh, you did not perfectly obey authority this week. You stole You coveted, and on and on and on the conscience goes. And eventually, the conscience says, you have sinned against all the commandments, and you have never kept one of them perfectly. And even more problematic than that, the conscience comes, and at times Satan works alongside of the testimony of our conscience, and he echoes And so the conscience says, you are still inclined to all forms of evil. And Satan whispers, that's right. You still serve idols. You who call yourself a Christian, you still covet. You who come into the conservative Reformed Church on Sunday morning, you still steal. And so the conscience accuses us. And yet, then there's a different voice. And that voice is the voice of the judicial declaration of the Lord God of heaven and of earth. In which he says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Well, how can that be? How is this tension solved? My conscience tells me I have sinned against all the commandments of God and never kept one of them. But God himself says, no condemnation. Well, that brings us into our second point, the basis for righteousness. And I want to be very clear this morning. The basis for a right standing before God does not depend upon anything that we do. Uh, that's why we read from Romans one, Romans four, rather, verse one. Uh, what does Abraham have to boast in, according to the flesh? And the answer is nothing. What do you have to boast in? What do I have to boast in? Well, if we properly understand the perfect righteousness of God, then we will come to know the answer is nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And yet, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we try to make a little bit of our righteousness the basis for our right standing before God. Uh, there is a little Pharisee, it has been said, that lives inside of all of us. And so maybe we look uh, at our fellow man uh, as we drive to church on Sunday morning and we say, Oh, look at him. There he is in line at the coffee shop. I thank you, O oh God, that I am not like other men. Because I don't do that. That's pharisaical. That's legalistic. That is not why we are righteous before God. Now, I'm certainly not advocating for such behavior. But any time that we make anything of that a part of our acceptance before God... We are in real danger because the basis for righteousness is the work of Christ and the gift of God. Uh, the work of Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism here references that Jesus Christ, perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness is the basis for our justification. Uh, now, to be clear, what is justification? Uh, we, we say, and hopefully you've learned this uh, as the older boys and girls in catechism class, it's a, it's a legal declaration. It's a forensic reality that takes place in a one-time statement made by God in His office as judge of the heaven and of the earth. It, it is this declaration that comes from the bench of God's tribunal Sovereignty, which says in relationship to a particular person, think of Abraham, think of David. So God, as the judge of the heaven and earth, looks upon Abraham and says, not guilty. And he looks upon David and he says, not guilty. But you think David, the adulterer, and Abraham, the idolater, and yet God says, not guilty. It's a declaration that is irrevocable. And Satan can jump up and down, so to speak, from the prosecuting bench, but he's silenced by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because as Satan jumps up and down, bringing forth accusations against the brethren, uh, like a forensic uh, prosecuting attorney, Jesus Christ stands and says, I have satisfied for David's adultery and for Abraham's idolatry. And I have satisfied the penalty of sin for every single one of my people, my children. And I did that once and for all on the cross as I took upon my shoulders with my divine and human nature, united together in the hypostatic union, as I took that cross member and as I walked outside the city of Jerusalem, just as the sacrificial lamb did time and time and time again in the Old Testament, and as I hung between heaven and earth, accursed by God, even though I had perfectly kept all the commandments, And as the darkness fell, Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, part of the answer is because he was bearing the sins of his people. But just think, as Satan tries to bring accusations against the elect of God, the eternal echo of it is finished thunders through the chambers of heaven itself. And God the Father says, yes, it is finished. Because Jesus Christ has taken away all the guilt of the sins of His people. I hope and I trust, I assume, that you are familiar with covenant theology and the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And we understand that there is a minority in the Reformed tradition who are not comfortable with the covenant of works terminology. So just call it the original covenant, the covenant with Adam, uh, that included a condition and a promise and a threat. God says to Adam, obey me perfectly and you will live. Sin against me and you will die. We know what happened. Adam sinned as the federal head of the human race and therefore his guilt was imputed to all of us since we're all the descendants of Adam. Uh, But in this wonderful, gracious transfer, all of that penalty of the covenant of works for the sake of the elect is placed upon Jesus Christ and he says, I will go and I will satisfy the penalty. But not only that, Jesus Christ also fulfills the condition of perfect obedience. And as wonderful as the forgiveness of sins is, let us never forget that that is not the entirety of the gospel. There is what we call double imputation. And an imputation is a legal transfer. Boys and girls, I don't know if you have a bank account, but maybe it's just a a piggy bank if they make such things anymore. Uh, now imagine, imagine your, your bank account, your penny bank account. And, and, and let's say you saw something you wanted to, to buy and you didn't have enough money. What, imagine whatever it is. Maybe some basketball cards or uh, a new car uh, or a ripstick or something else. You didn't have enough money, so you borrowed money. Even though uh, the borrower is a slave to the lender, you went out and you borrowed $100. So now how much money do you have in your bank account? Negative 100. You're in the hole, so to speak. 
Let's say I come along, and I have some sympathy for you, and I say, I'll pay off that $100. I'll take care of that debt. Now, I know school's starting again. Do the math quickly in your head. You were negative $100. I paid the $100. What's your account now? Zero. Zero. That's not really a good place to be. But then let's say, because again, I feel sorry for you. I say, not only am I going to pay the $100 debt, I'm going to transfer $1,000 and put it in your piggy bank. Now you do the math. You just went very quickly from being $100 in the hole to being $1,000 ahead. Now that's a very, very, very small analogy of what takes place in the double imputation of Christ. By nature, I have an infinite debt that I cannot even begin to pay called my sin. Christ takes that upon Himself. Deals with it once and for all at the cross, but that's not all He does. Throughout His earthly life, He fulfilled every single requirement of the law. And He takes all of that positive righteousness and He transfers it by grace to my account so that when God the Father in His judicial exercise looks at me, He sees no sin. And He sees perfect righteousness. And our form for the Lord's Supper brings this out. But this is what we call the double imputation, both the passive obedience and the active obedience of Christ. And as J. Gresham Machen, uh, the founder of the OPC, said, upon his very deathbed in the Dakotas as he lied dying, he, he sent word back to one of his colleagues, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without. And whenever it may be that you and I come to our deathbeds, may we say in essence the same thing by faith. Thank God. Not only that my sins have been removed once and for all, but also for the active righteousness of Christ, imputed, transferred by a gracious gift of God, so that there can be that declaration, there is therefore now no condemnation because of what Christ has done. Now in, you might say, in the mathematical equation of the work of Christ, always remember this. When it comes to our standing before God, when it comes to justification, when it comes to how am I right with God, Jesus Christ plus anything equals nothing. Jesus Christ, His active and passive obedience, if you try to add anything to that, it equals nothing. So what then must I do? Well, that brings us into our third point, the reception 
the reception of righteousness. We want to emphasize very clearly what we mean when we say we are righteous or we are justified by faith alone. And let us be reminded this morning that it is not, it is not the exercise of our faith that becomes the basis or the ground upon which we are declared righteous. Because I don't know about you, but my faith is not always perfect. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we come to testify that we do not have perfect faith. We have faith, yes, but not perfect faith. Peter did not have perfect faith. You can think of him uh, as he attempted to walk on water. At first it went rather well. Uh, as he looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and then he began to look at the circumstances uh, of the, the water and the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. Uh, you can think of many, many other examples. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. So we're going to be in despair. We're going to be tossed into all sorts of doubts and infirmities if we try to make the strength of the exercise of our faith the basis or the ground for our justification. Now, faith is not the basis or the ground. Faith is what we call the instrument of justification. And all it does, if we can say it this way, all faith does is it rests upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It receives the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes hold of Him. And you can see this played out time and time again during the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps in no better way than that of the woman who was stricken with an issue of blood, an incurable issue of blood, an incurable medical condition that would have made her perpetually unclean and an outcast of society. And she had spent all she had upon medical treatment after medical treatment to no avail. And then she heard about Jesus Christ. And she said to herself, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. And she kind of snuck her way in through the crowd. Uh, and secretly, perhaps out of fear, of shame, uh, she touched the hem of his garment. Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? The disciples uh, were somewhat perplexed and said, Master, look at the crowd. Look at the crowd. And, and at that time, of course, uh, there was no social distancing. They were bumping and rubbing and interacting. And the disciples were like, you want to know who's touching you? But Jesus knew something they didn't know. He knew an unclean woman had been healed and made pure simply by a touch. And that's the activity of faith. Now, the faith that justifies is never alone. And that's why the catechism will eventually get in uh, to the good works that flow out of the exercise of true faith. But it is faith alone that justifies. All, all a sinner has to do in order to be declared righteous before God is lay hold with knowledge and trust upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you this morning... Are you laying hold simply upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for your righteousness? Is there some similarity between you uh, and that woman that we just described? If I may but get to Jesus, I know I will be made whole. 
If I can just get to Jesus with all of my sin, with my conscience that is perpetually accusing me that I have violated all of the commandments of God and have never kept any of them perfectly and that I'm still inclined over and over and over to all forms of evil, if I can but get to Jesus Christ and reach out my hand of the soul and lay hold of Him, I shall be made whole. If you are, then you are justified. Then you have peace with God. But if you are not, if you are not laying hold of Jesus Christ with the exercise of faith, then you are not justified. But you can be. If you will but repent and believe. And I love to point out over and over to my own congregation. You can read the gospel narratives. You can read about all of the interaction of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would challenge you to try to find one time in which Jesus Christ ignored the sincere call or cry of a repentant sinner. You won't find it. Now, there were times he shrugged off, you might say, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But can you find a time in which he shrugged off a blind man who cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me? Can you find a time in which he passed a leper by who called out? It's not in there. Because Jesus is the friend of sinners. Because He came to save sinners who know that they are sinners and who look for their righteousness outside of themselves. And so based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ received by faith, there is this declaration of absolute righteousness. Uh, I begin to draw to a close uh, with a Loose quote from Martin Luther. I'm not sure it's verbatim. But he was fond of saying, When the devil comes and tempts me and asks me, Where is my righteousness? I tell him, Don't look here in my own soul for my righteousness. Don't look here in my own life for my righteousness. No. You must go to heaven. Because he is seated there at the right hand of the Father interceding on my behalf. Dear Christian, that's your hope. That's your confidence. And so remember again at what stage the Heidelberg Catechism asked this question. All of those articles of the Apostles' Creed which summarize the basics of the Christian faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection. What does it benefit you? What does it profit you? What does it really help you that you believe all this? Just to give you a jump start on Monday morning? Just to reinvigorate you for the next season of life? No, it's much deeper than that. It's much more substantial than that. 
Because no matter what Monday morning brings or no matter what season of life I find myself in, uh, whether it be uh, as a teenager uh, or even a a boy or a girl or whether it be in the midst of uh, the middle years of life or in the twilight years of life or if it even be on my very deathbed itself, what does it benefit me that I believe all of this? Well, I am righteous. In Christ before God and an heir to everlasting life. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand with a refreshing new appreciation at the absolute wonder of your redemptive grace worked out through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and applied by the Spirit. We pray, Father, that while our conscience accuses us, may the voice of the gospel speak ever louder that all of those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are declared righteous, based not upon our own works, but based upon the once and for all finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so may faith be increased within each and every one of our hearts so that your name alone might be glorified. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.